0: Well, let's gather around. We are continuing our series of messages, uh, looking at the book of Jonah, the first chronologically of the minor prophets. And if you weren't here last week, uh, one important interpretive lens we need to be wearing when we are reading the book of Jonah is to see this wayward prophet, this almost comical, laughable figure, as a picture of Israel in in this historical context. Jonah's attitude was a picture of unfaithful Israel just as Jonah ignored his calling and his mission and his message, so also was Israel doing the same thing at this time in history. And much like the prophet Hosea's life was a living parable, so also Jonah's real life historical experiences are told to us in such a way that we are meant to see ourselves in Jonah's shoes. So I pointed out last week that uh, at this point in Israel's history, Israel had abandoned its vocation to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead of living in holy fear and dependence upon the Lord, they had become complacent. Not only setting up idols and worshiping other gods, but also living immoral lives living lives that were indistinguishable from their pagan neighbors. Not only uh, were they doing that, but they they didn't live up to their calling to be a light to the Gentiles. And that meant to live lives in such a God-honoring way that it would be clear that they are truly a people set apart. So Israel had abandoned its vocation, much like Jonah had abandoned his vocation as a prophet. And their religion had become void of real meaning and heartfelt passion. They had an outward form of religion where they still gathered, they still went through the motions of prayer and singing and sacrifice, but it didn't touch their their hearts. And the Lord called this kind of worship an unacceptable worship, He refused to receive their offerings or even hear their prayers because of the sin in their lives. The Lord spoke to the prophet Amos who was a contemporary of Jonah. And Jonah uh, is given this word from the Lord about Israel's religious activities. I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies Even though you offer them burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. He's essentially saying, church, don't come to church on Sundays, but live like a pagan the rest of the week, and then expect that God is going to hear your prayers and receive your worship and enjoy our gatherings and come near to us in his spirit. There is a real thing as unacceptable worship in Scripture. Jesus saw it in his own day, in his own generation. He said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is the context behind the minor prophets. This is the, the day and age that Jonah and Amos and Joel and all these guys are living in. And I do fear it's a picture of contemporary Christianity in our own context. So Jonah is a picture of empty religion. Church, let us not be guilty of unacceptable worship where we honor God with our lips but our hearts are far from him on Monday. Let's turn from unrepentant sin. Let's confess our secret sins and turn from them so that we can be free to offer acceptable worship unto the Lord. You know, when sin is confessed and turned from, God's spirit comes near to us in grace and mercy, and that's what we're seeing at Asbury. But when sin is held onto and cherished in our hearts, then God's Holy Spirit flees it will be far from us in our gatherings. Oh, that we would love the Lord with such passion that we would fear offending him more than we would fear losing and letting go of our sinful ways. So as we turn to our passage this morning, this is the context of the minor prophets. This is the context of Israel when Jonah is fleeing from the Lord. He's a picture of empty religion, a picture of lukewarm faith. And so, as we read our passage, it's good for us to prepare our hearts to receive God's word in song. So let's stand together as we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. To my heart to sing Thy praise, streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some. Here I- too great. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray indeed that we come to the word that it is a fount of blessing, overflowing with words of truth and words of life. So may your spirit fall and rest on us now in the exposition of your word. Change our hearts, convict us of sin, encourage the discouraged, and bring low the prideful. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up uh, where we left off last week in verse 4. And uh, verse 3 left off with the, with the ominous words, He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. We pick up in verse 4. So Jonah 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? They said to them, I, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to him, what shall you? Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows in the word of the Lord. So Jonah is on the run. we all know the folly of running from God, right we can 't do it god 's omnipresent, which means he 's everywhere. so from the opening verses we 're told two times that jonah 's attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord and, and just invites us to laugh at this prophet. David wrote long ago in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And indeed, we see from our passage that the Lord does lead and hold Jonah as God's sovereign hand directs this narrative. God chose Jonah for a reason. And so we're going to break down this passage into four parts. Verses four to five, we're we're going to read that sin invites God's judgment. In verses six to eight, we'll see that Jonah is rebuked by the pagans. In verses 11 to 15, Jonah becomes a substitute. And in verse 16, we see the sailors get saved. Amen. So let's begin with Jonah's obvious sin of ignoring God and and running the opposite direction. How does God respond to this? We read in verses four and five that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. God doesn't let Jonah's Sinful, sinful response go unanswered. And, and here's a clear spiritual principle that we find being taught throughout Old Testament and New Testament. Sin will always bring a storm in its wake. Sin will always carry with it a consequence. Sin will always bring with it God's judgment and wrath. And just like God will not let Jonah's rebellion go unanswered, either will he let Israel's rebellion go unanswered, and neither will he let your own rebellion rebellion go unanswered. God is a holy God. He's a God of justice, and it's just who he is in his nature. Sin will have consequences, and every sin comes with a storm. But as we will see, God is also a God of love and and mercy. And when these two come together, we begin to see the true power of God. And that's what we're seeing in this passage. The spiritual principle is that our sins will always carry with them a consequence. Moses warned the people in uh, Numbers 32, 23, what happens when they drift away from the Lord. But if you will not do so, right, all the commandments of the Lord... Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Your sins will find you out. My father told me that all the time whenever he caught me. Your sins will find you out. The farther Jonah fled, the greater the tempest raged. And so let's reflect on that truth uh, for a moment in our own lives. It's good to remember that the Lord gives us his law. Why does he give us his commandments, his moral commands? It's a gift they're, they're for our good. He says, I give you these laws so that it may go well with you. And so sin is always a distortion of God's good design for us and for this world. And so there there are going to be natural consequences to sin. If we treat our bodies poorly, we should not expect to be healthy. If we allow bitterness and resentment and dishonesty in our marriages, we can't expect to have a healthy and happy marriage. Sin has consequences built into it because it it, it rubs against God's plans and, and design for our lives. Now, I wanna be sure to add that not every storm or every hardship you go to is an immediate result from a personal sin, but we can still say that all suffering does stem from Adam's original sin, and suffering is the result of living in a broken and sinful world, so we can still say that every storm uh, does have sin at its root. Now, in Jonah's case, uh, he experiences instant repercussions for his sin. But in most of your lives, it will be like a slow burn, like a slow growing cancer or or like being exposed to radiation where you, you only experience the negative effects of sin over time. And it's in this subtle, deceitful strategy of Satan, just a little taste and then you want a little more and then a little more until he's got you in his grasp. That's why it's such a grace that God does judge and reveal sin to his children through the Holy Spirit and often through storms so that we may be forgiven, so that we can see our sin and turn from it before our sins grab us and hold us captive and ultimately destroy us. So this storm is actually God's grace that he's pursuing Jonah, He's not letting Jonah flee from his presence. He says, no, I am a pursuing God. I love you, Jonah. I'm not going to let you walk away from me. And so this storm is God's grace. And maybe God is bringing you through a storm right now in your life. And maybe for you it seems like a horrible, miserable season, but God is a loving father who is tenderly using the storm to bring you to a place of trust independence, just like he's doing for Jonah. In our storms, when we're we're really going through these seasons of anguish, God is going to be your rock. The 19th century preacher Spurgeon, who battled depression, famously said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. So let us also learn to cherish these seasons of refining and discipline that come from a loving father who would rather see us suffer temporarily than bear the eternal consequences of unrepentant sin. So the first point is that that sin will always bring a storm in tow, but God will always use that storm as a beautiful demonstration of his grace and mercy, just like it is for Jonah. Jonah. So let's return to Jonah and see how the pagan captain and sailors respond to Jonah's behavior. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Like, what are you doing? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us thought to us and we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. so Jonah here is rebuked, not once, but twice. First by the captain in verse 6, what do you mean, you, you oh sleeper? What are you doing? And then secondly by the sailors in verse 10, what is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing. So again, we have to appreciate some of the ironies here. Above we saw that as soon as the storm hit, the pagans start fervently to what? Pray. And Jonah fervently sleeps. Is that not a picture of lukewarm faith? Now the captain and the sailors both rebuke Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, for fleeing from the presence of the Lord and sleeping on the job. And the captain even uses the same expression the Lord used in verse 1, arise and go, So the irony is thick here. God sent Jonah to go to the pagans and point them to God. But here, what are the pagans doing? They're pointing Jonah to God. And pregnant within these verses are identity questions. Look at verse eight. What's your vocation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Who's your people? These are central, profound questions of identity. And our behavior tells us Our identity, how we identify ourselves. And so the implication of these questions, the implication is that Jonah is not living up to his true identity. He's not living up to his vocation. And so if Jonah is a picture of backsliding Israel, then we have to sense the heaviness of these identity questions here because there's some heavy criticism falling on Israel in this passage. Israel, who are you? What's your vocation? Where do you come from? What's your name? What's your country? Jonah was fleeing the presence of the Lord, sleeping while God's judgment was falling all around him. Jonah knows the way of salvation. He knows the God to whom they should pray, yet he resists. He flees to, and refuses to point them to the Lord alone who could save them. He doesn't care about them, much less himself. And so this isn't just an indictment on Israel. It's an indictment of the church today. Church, who are you? Where are you from? What's your vocation? You're the bride of Christ. You're purchased by the blood of Jesus. You're not your own. You are to be salt and light in this world. Many of us are sleeping on the job. We're running from our calling and our vocation living lives that are indistinguishable from our pagan neighbors. And Jonah is putting up a mirror to Israel, to our own eyes, and asking, who are you? What's your job here? Who saved you? Who made you? Who gave you new life? And you're asleep. What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. So the sailors are basically asking Jonah, hey, why didn't you tell us where to go for salvation? Imagine one day we stand before Jesus in judgment and he's separating the sheep and the goats. He's separating those who would be eternally saved and from those who will eternally suffer in hell. And you see your colleagues, your friends, your family being sent off and they look at you and say, why didn't you tell me? That's what Jonah's experiencing at this moment, the fearful, terrified look of the sailors asking Jonah, rebuking Jonah in the midst of the storm and saying, why didn't you tell us? Jonah was asleep in the hull, and I fear that many Christians have joined Jonah in that dangerous slumber. We know the way of salvation. We know on whom they can call but we're asleep. Spurgeon, again, I'm reading a biography. Um, Spurgeon says, Jonah was asleep amid all the confusion and noise and oh, Christian man, for you to be indifferent to all that is going on in the world such as this, for you to be negligent of God's work in such a time as this, it's just strange. The devil alone is making noise enough to wake all the Jonas if they want only to awake. All around us, there's a tumult and a storm Yet some professing Christians are able like Jonah to go to sleep in the side of a ship. Let's not be like Jonah. Wake up. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. Wake up, church. Wake up. The second point this morning is that Jonah is rebuked by the very people God sent Jonah to save. God sent Jonah to go to the pagans and point them to God. But what do we find here? But the pagans are pointing Jonah to God. So how does Jonah respond? What happens when he looks in those fearful, terrified eyes? Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. First off, I want you to see another interesting contrast between Jonah and the sailors. Jonah knew where to find salvation, while the sailors were terrified and scared, throwing off cargo, and Jonah could care less, and he went down and slept. Now contrast that with Jonah confessing his sin to the sailors. And what do they do? They extended mercy and grace to him. And then they do all they can to preserve Jonah's life. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But at the end of the day, Jonah had to be cast into the sea in order for the tempest to stop. So Jonah had to bear the brunt of God's wrath so that the sailors could be saved. Stop and reflect on that for a second. Jonah had to bear the brunt of God's wrath so that the sailors could be saved. Now, we don't know Jonah's motives, why he said, throw me into the ocean. We don't know if he really repented and wanted to save the sailors. We don't know if he was just tired of running from God and knew that that was his only option. It could have been that he'd just do about anything rather than go to Nineveh. But for us, the fact that Jonah had to bear the brunt of God's wrath so the sailors could be saved, Jonah gave up his life to save the sailors. And that introduces for us an incredibly important preview of the work of Christ on the cross. Jonah's actions were one of many previews or types of Christ that we find in the Old Testament. And in Matthew 12, Jesus himself refers to Jonah and says something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus, who was without sin, bore the wrath of God so that we who were sinners could be saved. Jonah definitely had mixed (laughs) motives when he dove into the ocean, but Jesus His motives were pure and good. And unlike Jonah, Jesus was innocent. Jesus was indeed a true and better Jonah for us. And that's the gospel message here in in this passage. Jonah bore the wrath of God so that the sailors could be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus went to the cross and he, he redirected God's holy wrath away from you and onto himself fully and squarely. The guilt of your sin, the shame of your sin, the consequences of your sin all fell on Christ on the cross. And as Jonah dove into the waters of God's righteous wrath, Jesus submerged himself into our sin and allowed God's holy wrath to be poured out on him in our place as our substitute so that we might approach God without guilt, without shame, and because of Jesus, we can confidently, boldly come before the throne of the Almighty, and he considered us pure and blameless, a faithful son, a faithful daughter, although we were not. What a beautiful truth to ponder. You know, when we stand before God, we have to give an account of our life, and In this one short life we've been given, we cannot at the end stand before a pure and holy God and point to our good deeds or our charity work or our pious prayers. These are not going to save you because the question is not how good are you, as if that mattered how good you think you are or if you think you're more good than bad. The question is going to be Are you completely without sin? Are you totally pure? Are you totally blameless? Totally spotless? Because that's what it takes to stand before a holy God. Thanks be to God, we have a substitute. And his name is Jesus. And he offers us forgiveness, atonement, his purity, his good standing before the Father. What a Savior! What a message! So how can we respond to this wonderful work of grace and mercy? Well, don't look to Jonah. Let's see how the sailors respond. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The moment Jonah absorbed that wrath of God, the sea ceased from its raging, and the sailors experienced peaceful, tranquil, waters. And as a result, they feared the Lord exceedingly because they had seen what his power and they beheld his wrath. They felt his fury, but they also experienced the mercy and grace of a substitute. And that's exactly what happens when you receive Christ in your life. He, he redirects the wrath of God that should be on you onto him and the seas that are raging in your heart will cease. And you'll experience the peace of God that will bring your heart to rest. And this fear that they have, this exceeding fear, is an odd mix of, of fear of the real wrath of God. We should fear the wrath of God. But it's also a fear of awe and ex- as they experience the mercy and, and grace of God. So if you don't know this peace, if you don't know this this beautifully complex fear of the Lord that is both a a real fear, but also an awe of how generous he is despite your sin, then I want to invite you to come. It can only be found in Jesus. Confess your sins, turn from them, and Christ will run towards you. After the service today, we'll have our prayer team, which... um, just happened to to come up in January that we now have a prayer team. So there'll be four, two women, two men here after the service to pray for you. Come sit on this front row and we can minister to you. Whatever it is, you don't have to just give your life to Christ. You can pray for a spiritual renewal in your heart. Maybe there's a sin that you want to confess or uh, a struggle in your life. We'd be happy to minister to you in that way. So church, as we close this passage, let's not miss the message of Jonah to us and to the contemporary church. If you are an ancient Israelite and you're reading this passage for the first time, you're reading it thinking the Israelites are special, we're worthy, we even deserve God's mercy and protection. And it's the sailors who are the wicked ones who deserve God's judgment. And so reading Jonah it would have turned your world upside down. The person you would have identified with most would have, in the story would have been in the prophet of Israel who experiences the judgment of God. And while those that you think are the most deserving of judgment receive the mercy and grace of God. And so Jonah flips the script. And it's meant to rub you the wrong way. It's meant to make you uncomfortable. It's meant... To have you look in the mirror, and it's meant to be a warning to lukewarm and black backsliding faithful, unfaithful people. But it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to show you the heart of God, who loves all people, and it gives Him pleasure to show mercy and grace. It's in His nature to lavish upon us undeserved unmerited favor through Jesus Christ. This Wednesday we're going to begin a kind of church-wide time of prayer and fasting. Wednesday is the beginning of Lent uh, representing the 40 days uh, leading up to Easter. And it'll culminate on Friday evening with our worship and prayer evening um, this Friday at 7.30. So I just there's some we want to have a 24-hour chain of prayer for these three days. Um, there's a lot of slots left, so please take take time after the service to fill out so that we can have a continuous chain. Otherwise, a few faithful are going to be really tired next weekend. <clears throat> um, but also use this week to, like the sailors, they made vows to the Lord. They they put it all on the altar. Use this week to, to recommit your life to Christ, to, to really ask the Lord to show you areas in your life that you need to turn from, that you need to repent of. Maybe there's some idols that you just need to tear down in your heart. And let this season of Lent be a time of refining in, in your life and in our church. You know, like these sailors, we, we can, can use this time to be a time of renewal, and recommitment to the Lord. Let the students of Asbury minister to you and inspire your own heart towards renewal and revival. You know, this current awakening is characterized by humility, reverence before God, order, confession and repentance, prayer. You know, oh, that that type of renewal would fall on our church here in Oberosel. So let's take this Lent this Easter season, to humble ourselves, recommit our lives to the Lord. We read in 2 Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Don't fall for the folly of thinking that you don't have sin in your life. Take this time to fall before the Lord, lay it on the altar, and recommit your life to Christ. Let's pray.